Welcome to the Geoeconomics Podcast. I'm your host, Alexa Bamazovich, and today I'll be speaking with Michael Bruno, who is the Senior Business Editor at Aviation Week Network. This conversation doesn't focus as much on special economic zones, but rather on the geoeconomics of the aviation industry, and particularly the nascent area of commercial space. We're talking about satellites, rocket launches, etc. I think that the conversation will be best for those who are curious about commercial space and where it's going in the next years. And without further ado, here's Michael. So, Michael, welcome to the Geoeconomics Podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Well, Michael, with your uh, sort of experience in the aerospace industry, we were wondering just for our, uh, for our listeners who may not be acquainted, can you tell us what the very basics of the logistics and commercial aspect of the aerospace industry is currently. And uh, maybe you could also uh, focus on the defense aspect of it as well. Sure. So the aerospace industry was just going gangbusters. It was having uh, record business results all the way up until the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, unfortunately. And uh, so one way to look at it is what was happening with aerospace right up until that point, and then kind of where we are now after this uh, historic reset. So right before COVID-19, we had more people flying than ever. There were more aircraft being built, commercial airliners being built, about a thousand of them from the major OEMs. Those are the original equipment manufacturers, people like Boeing and Airbus and Embraer, Bombardier. They were, they could not crank out enough aircraft to meet all of the airline demand uh, that was demanded worldwide. Airlines were popping up in places, uh, China, India, uh, Malaysia, and of course, in the traditional aviation markets of Europe and the United States and North America. So uh, things were going great right up to that point. On the defense side, Things were actually going pretty well, too. There had there'd been a slowdown in the defense aerospace world after the end of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And we went through about two decades, about 20 years of where there were just decreasing numbers of aircraft being built. And that finally kind of plateaued. And with aircraft like the Joint Strike Fighter, which is a nine-nation program led by the United States, there were increasingly new opportunities to sell these aircraft. And then at the same time, several more countries were interested in other kinds of fighter and transport aircraft, like the F-16 or the A-400. So um, there's there, things were looking pretty good. And then COVID-19 hit, and everything got shut down. So here we are. There, It was almost a complete standstill starting around uh, March of 2020, uh, which was just kind of unprecedented. Uh, Aircraft were getting parked. Many were getting retired. The passenger levels on the commercial side had dropped by a half. And so the question now facing the industry writ large, the whole aerospace and defense industry, begins with what's going to happen with commercial aerospace, because the majority of the money in the industry is made on the commercial aerospace side. So everybody wants to know, When people are going to travel again, who's going to travel? Is it just going to be vacationers and pensioners and leisure travelers? Are the business travelers going to come back? Because there might be fewer business travelers than leisure travelers, but the business travelers make up more of the revenue stream across the board, whether you're an airliner or the people who are making the aircraft. The business travelers are important. And it's a big question as to whether everybody's going to stay on Zoom or some other online platform or go back to flying. On the defense side, finally, um, it's worth just noting that, unfortunately, risks continue to build around the world. It continues to be a dangerous world in the eyes of many countries. And so 
that's bad news. But the good news is for defense manufacturers and people who make aircraft, they're building more. There are more customers interested in buying more. And there's opportunities around the world for getting in on this action because more countries want these aircraft built locally. I think that's a really good introduction to the commercial and uh, defense aerospace industry. And with regard to how this industry touches special economic zones, I'm sure some listeners are wondering that. Um, honestly, it's not there isn't too much overlap between the two. If I may just diverge for a second, there was a short story in 2017 with Joint Venture uh, setting up defense aerospace production in the Mihan uh, Special Economic Zone down in India. But other than that, I don't think that this conversation is going to be focusing too much on uh, on special economic zones, but rather the industry of uh, of aerospace as a whole. So regarding what you just said, I'm very interested in how this crisis affected the defense sector specifically obviously it's uh, it's much it's much smaller than the commercial aerospace but i was wondering if you could just tell me more about which uh, which sort of regions were uh, the hardest hit by this were there any major purchases that fell through because of uh, because of changes in budgeting with uh, with covid aid or uh, something else that happened that's uh, large enough to report on in this space yeah, so the amazing thing is so far so good when it comes to the majority of the defense aerospace programs that were happening uh, worldwide. And uh, it's so far so good because governments, as part of their response to the COVID-19 economic impact, many of them, especially in the West, actually increased the amount of money that they were pushing toward the industry and pushing toward their military customers, their agencies that are customers to the industry. There was more money coming in the door because the government was just trying to keep everybody afloat. So in the United States, for instance, the U.S. government in Washington pushed through into the marketplace about $3 billion more than it normally would have in 2020. And so actually, when you look at the defense industry, you look at the balance sheets of companies like Lockheed Martin or Boeing, these are major aircraft providers, uh, they look quite good. They actually had great years financially. Part of that is because the government was providing a lot of money. That happened in Europe. Several European governments did the same thing there. And because the U.S. and Europe are the responsible customers that are providing many of these aircraft that are built in other places like India, uh, where there might be a partnership to build aircraft, for instance, all of these programs are still doing relatively well. So it's kind of amazing to think that we've gone through this horrible pandemic, but the defense side of things probably going to come through it. There's no indication yet um, when you look at the mil major military budgets of the world, starting with the United States, that there's necessarily any one program that's going to get cut. Now, it remains to be seen as we go into this decade and there's more pressure on national budgets to deal with the debt that accumulated because of the pandemic, there may be problems in the future for certain programs, particularly older programs. Um, if you're involved in an aircraft uh, that is, you know, 50 years old, and we've got plenty of those in the defense fleets, they could be more vulnerable as governments look to newer types of aircraft that have new technologies that they're interested in. However, there's one thing to be said about the old aircraft. There's always a, a but here in these conversations when it comes to economics. These older aircraft are able to be built in partner countries. So for instance, the United States is working with India potentially on a partnership to build F-16s, Lockheed Martin F-16s in India, if uh, the Indian government decides to go ahead and do that. And 
that's possible partly because the F-16 is a very old aircraft and there isn't technology there that uh, the U- U.S. is worried about losing. So plenty of opportunity, it seems, worldwide. And, and maybe some of these special economic zones, they could actually see new work coming at them because of this growth in the defense aerospace world. Yeah, defense and aerospace is a really exciting sector, and I'm uh, curious why it's not as uh, as well reported on within the SCZ space as it is uh, as it is otherwise. Another uh, another aspect of what you said that was quite interesting to me is sort of the projects in the uh, aerospace defense industry won't be losing out too much on the budget side. And uh, during a previous conversation that you and I had, Michael, there was uh, mention of something called uh, offset agreements, and uh, regarding the lack of budget cuts. Uh, I'm very curious as to how these uh, how these offset agreements may sort of be changed now that uh, now that COVID arrived. Could you uh, explain more about what these agreements are and sort of how they're going to be changing in the future? Yeah, sure. So offset agreements, these are a huge, huge issue in the international defense arms um, industry and, and the trade that happens every year. Offsets, of course, are the requirements that the customer country, say, for instance, the United States agrees to sell F-16s to a country such as India, not make them in India, but if you're going to sell them basically as a whole product to India, India may come back to the United States and say, look, we don't just want to be giving you our money to pay for your product. We want you to make some part of your product in our country. We want you to make some part of that F-16 in India. And more importantly, lately, in the past five to 10 years, countries have been saying, we don't just want you to spend money in our own country. We want you to help build up our own industry. Offsets go back decades, as long as there's been a a Western uh, international arms trade, you know, since the end of World War II, what we call the modern era of this international arms trade. But in the beginning, for many, many decades, it was simply just, hey, um, United States or Lockheed Martin based in the United States, we'd like you to um, help dig some wells or, you know, send some money toward local schools or something that just kind of helps us out locally. But as I said, now, Other countries around the world want the West's help in building up their own industry. And this is really interesting because clearly for many of these countries, such as India, you were talking about before with that that offset agreement where there was controversy uh, with the Dassault fighters and a big, big deal in India that has been taking them, I don't know, I think it's something like 15 years to try to bring to a close and they, they just can't. Uh, bring that program to a close, partly because they keep having problems rolling out the program with things like offsets. So India says, hey, um, Dassault, we want you to come spend money here and help us build up our industry. And it, you know, a lot of that work often gets directed toward these kind of economic zones where where the, the home country is looking to build up economically. And that seems obvious and seems good, But unfortunately, there have been a lot of cases where there's been corruption tied to it, or at least corruption as measured on Western standards that these Western companies have to answer for. So Dassault gets in trouble for potentially favoring some local company in India over another. And it, you know, it just doesn't look good. There's there's indications that maybe something close to a bribe gets paid. And so it gets really, really tricky. That's not to say that offsets are corrupt by themselves. They're absolutely not. And going back to the previous question you asked, you know, 
defense trade is going so well and is actually expected to continue to be relatively well for the next several years, I would expect offsets to continue to be an important part of this issue and for more economic opportunity in these economic zones because places like India, Malaysia, Philippines, all of them, they want local industry built up and they're looking toward the Western companies to help them do that. I think you very much hit the nail on the head regarding uh, regarding offset agreements in special economic zones. I mean, were I a country that's uh, trading with another one and this sort of defense purchase were to happen, I'd be quite interested in having this uh, presumably more industrialized country's know-how and, uh, and industry be reproduced in my country in one way or another. And I think special economic zones are a really good way of doing that. Um, yeah. Regarding... Yeah. If I can jump in and just add one more thing there, what what I think is so interesting that's going to occur over the next decade, uh, and I'm not the only one who sees this, um, I'm certainly not the smartest person covering these developments, but because you have these special economic zones where it's easier for new things to happen, you can build up industry there. You don't have, they're often in areas that are less developed, and so there's more opportunity to do new things. So it is actually attractive to Western companies and countries when they're looking to complete their offset requirements through their local customer to go to these kind of zones and say, hey, you know, we're happy to build something up here because it's a lot easier to do it there than to do it in the middle of a major metropolitan area. So I, I could actually see increased interest in these zones. Absolutely. I think that the regulatory advantages and the regulatory sandboxes, which are sort of these regulatory carte blanche areas where uh, you're able to innovate with completely new technologies that are sort of in the gray area of, uh, of legal regulation. I right. think that these zones can be sort of the blast furnace in which is forged the new aerospace industry of the 21st century. And what I'd really like to talk about now, and I think this might be the uh, the most exciting part of the conversation, is what are sort of the future directions that uh, aerospace might take in the next uh, in the next 10 or so years. There's particularly an interest from our listeners regarding sort of com commercial space and uh, near-Earth orbit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how much time do we have on this uh, podcast? Because we could go on all day about <laughs> the amazing new developments that are happening. And I don't just say that as a person who loves airplanes and, and spacecraft. You know, I wanted to grow up and be an astronaut like uh, so many other people. But we're living at such an interesting time. COVID-19, it turns out it's a horrible, horrible experience that the world has gone through. But what it's doing is it's suddenly accelerating several trends that are happening across the aerospace and defense sector. These trends were already started. Uh, many of them were inevitable, uh, but they probably weren't going to play out for about 10 years at the soonest, and, and quite possibly no sooner than 20 years down the line. Now, all of a sudden, we are going to see developments happen over the next five to 10 years. You're going to see a whole new elements of the aerospace and defense marketplace emerge. So some of the most exciting parts, you mentioned commercial space. I might as well start there. We're living at an historic transition point where it is suddenly becoming viable to have commercial companies operating in outer space all by themselves without the government. Up until a couple of years ago, up until companies like SpaceX were really sending up their own rockets under a contract with the U.S. government, NASA, of course, up until that point, the previous 
you know, 60, 70 years of spaceflight had basically been by government writ. You required the government to have a program, and you are a contractor trying to help the government complete its program. Now, we've got companies, commercial space rocket builders, companies that are building their own rockets, companies that are building their own satellites, companies that are building infrastructure in outer space that are going to serve the satellites in place. So what I mean by that is there are companies out there who are building the equivalent of gas stations, where you can plug your satellite into their gas station, refuel your satellite, and suddenly get several more years of, of value out of that asset that you've put in outer space. Tons and tons of rocket companies developing. There's about 160 projects that we're tracking that we know about. They're not all going to make it. In fact, most of them aren't going to make it. But we're going to have new entrants. It's no longer the world of of uh, of just uh, Ariane Space and Lockheed Martin. You know, you're going to have new names that are out there and not just SpaceX. So commercial space, really exciting. There's actually a ton of innovation happening back here on Earth. One of the interesting developments that's been sped up is the idea of supersonic and maybe even hypersonic commercial flight. So what do I mean by supersonic and hypersonic? Supersonic means going faster than the speed of sound. Hypersonic means going five times, five times faster than the speed of sound. Hypersonics used to be just what rockets could achieve, but now we're actually looking at the potential for commercial airliners to be created that could go that fast. And what that means is you can get from New York to London in a couple of hours. You can get from New York to Tokyo in a couple of hours more. So ostensibly, you could wake up in the morning, have breakfast with your kids, get on a hypersonic airplane, fly to Tokyo, do a business lunch, and make it back to sleep in your own bed that same day. So these are developments that are actually happening. Leading the way in this sort of supersonic, hypersonic charge are new business jets. We have companies like Arion and Boom that are coming up with new supersonic business jets that they plan to roll out within about five to 10 years. They've already got backlogs, $10 billion of backlog at Arion, for instance. So there are people putting down real money who believe they're going to buy these aircraft waiting for them to happen. There's no reason why these aircraft can't be developed. The interesting thing, going back to your community for a moment, with these um, developments like commercial space and supersonics, it's going to require all kinds of new infrastructure on the ground. And that new infrastructure, is, again, is going to be looking for places to be built, easier places rather than hard places. Places that are hard to build them are like in the middle of cities, highly populated areas where there's a bunch of legacy infrastructure already in place. You'd have to tear it out. If you want to put in a new spaceport, you got to tear out the old airport, but nobody's going to want to put up with that, certainly not the local residents. So these these local economic zones uh, have the potential to help meet some of this new demand that's that's popping up. And finally, just, just one thing I want to point out, because it is a big issue in, in aerospace and defense, the whole aerospace and defense world is trying to go green. What I mean by that is they're trying to be more sustainable, more environmentally friendly. Um, there are ideas about trying to make aircraft electric hybrid powered. Probably not going to happen where you get on a large aircraft and fly between countries, you know, like we're used to doing now with A320s and 747s. That's probably not going to happen because um, there's just not big enough batteries to support that kind of aircraft. 
But if you're getting on a smaller, a regional type of aircraft, you'll be able to fly quite possibly in an emissions-free aircraft within about 15 years as a paying customer. And, and that's really amazing. Before that happens, though, we're going to see other developments um, such as what are called sustainable aviation fuels. These are green fuels that are made from crops, green fuels that are made from waste um, that we're already trying to get rid of. And you can convert that into a fuel, basically, instead of pumping oil out of the ground and trying to make aviation fuel out of it. So lots of opportunities. There's a mind-boggling amount that's going on. Uh, and it's it's really stunning because um, people who are living now over the next 10 years and people who are trying to make money in this are going to see new opportunities that they hadn't thought would be possible maybe even in their lifetime. I think that this entire conversation uh, loops in really well with the last one that we had. And just to remind our listeners, the last one was with uh, John Anutsati of Mothership Aeronautics. And what we were talking about was sort of the 3D printing and uh, SEZ innovation aspects in uh, in aviation. And uh, regarding what you just said, I think that the combination of this sort of decentralized way of, uh, of manufacturing as well as innovating and this exploding need for uh, commercial aerospace and and the on-land infrastructure, as well as the supply chains that sort of feed into the whole system, uh, is going to create a completely new economy, I think. This overlap of special economic zones and commercial space is probably going to be one of the most interesting growth industries in the next 10 years or so. I'm curious what you think about uh, lighter-than-air travel. You know, that is an, an idea that has been toyed about. Obviously, lighter-than-air travel existed before there were aircraft. Uh, we were playing with balloons, not just tinkering with them as humans, but then we, of course, created uh, military programs out of them. They were they were used by the military in, in wars before the aircraft came along and helped show how you could use aviation assets for national security. Uh, lighter-than-air continues to be this dream that is being pursued mostly by, uh, I would call the billionaire class, the people who are uh, the same sort of folks who were building these commercial rockets in the beginning, like uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They were also, some of them were also interested in major lighter than air programs where you would um, create these massive, massive cargo airships uh, where you would slowly uh, move just a tremendous amount of goods from one place on the earth to another place. You do it slowly over time, but it's quite all right because it's like a ship on the sea, except you were doing it in the air at high altitude. It continues to be looked at. And, you know, that's again, one of those things where these aircraft would need to be built somewhere and they certainly need to operate. There need to be ports, airports somewhere where these ships can land and there's supply chains and logistics trains uh, that feed these ports. And obviously these ports are going to happen in the lesser populated areas and could very well be candidates for, for these special economic zones. I would just caution one thing though. It has not turned into much of a commercial sector. And the, there's a couple of key reasons about that. One of which is it would take a lot of money to build up the infrastructure. And why, you know, why go build up the new infrastructure somewhere else when you already have an infrastructure built around aircraft and you have a whole aviation system that knows the aviation world as it is with airports that exist. So that's just kind of been one headwind that has slowed things down. There's also been some technological difficulties. Believe it or not, it's not as easy to just build an airship and uh, attach a bunch of things underneath it and fly it around the world. There's a whole bunch of new technologies you got to figure out. But you had mentioned there's new technologies that are that we're playing with. 3D printing, automation, robotics, big data, 
the internet of things where just about every device is connected one way or another. All of these technologies are getting accelerated this decade. So just because things like airships haven't grown big yet doesn't mean that they can't, especially if you take these new technologies and kind of enable them and help them happen sooner. So I'm I'm going to have to go back and listen to your uh, previous podcast, but you know, it's it certainly sounds like uh, those new technologies. I mean, I would actually I would I would really look at them as enablers for some of this economic growth. Yeah, I think these pockets of innovation are going to service a very interesting boom in uh, commercial space. I wonder if you could talk more about sort of the easy money or a, I guess a better term would be low-hanging fruit uh, regarding, you know, satellite launch facilities, supply chains regarding commercial space and stuff like that. Right. Well, you know, I don't know if you call it easy money because it always takes some money to make money, right? So, so some investment's going to have to be made up front. But if you look at commercial space and you just extrapolate the idea that commercial space could look like commercial aviation. You look at commercial aviation and there are airports everywhere and you've got big airports and small airports and you've got logistic trains and and supply chains that feed into these airports. You're going to have to come up with the equivalent for spaceports. Um, If technology is no longer the barrier to working in space and using space for your own business, um, then that means you got to create the infrastructure to make it work. You know, if we're going to have enough rockets, we're going to have enough satellites, we're going to have enough enabling technology to actually make these space-based assets its work. What we won't have maybe are enough commercial spaceports here on Earth for people to fly in and out of. You're going to have to put these somewhere if uh, people want to land, you know, if they want to send a satellite into orbit, do a science experiment or manufacturing, and then bring that finished product back down to Earth. You don't want to bring that product back down and have to go to some foreign country to pick it up. You want to pick it up in your own backyard, right? You want your factory, your finishing line next to the spaceport where this product comes back into the earth and you just roll over to the spaceport and pick up your product and, you know, put it in your supply chain, pardon me, or, or put it on a train or something based next to the spaceport. And so there's an opportunity for spaceports to come along. And then there's going to be an opportunity for companies to feed that infrastructure as well. These rockets going to require fuel. Uh, these rockets are going to require small parts repair, especially as, as we produce more of them and it becomes more of a commodity. It's not just you know a unique thing that we watch happen on the TV. If you've got rockets taking off in your region, people who build the rockets are going to need help, not just building them, repairing them, but uh, also eventually taking them apart. So what are you going to do with the waste um, from these rockets? Uh, just like old aircraft, you're going to have to do something with them. With old aircraft, we, uh, we try to cycle them. We break them down into parts. You try to reuse some of those parts. Um, If you can't reuse it, there's no market for it. We park these parts somewhere in the open desert, typically, in case somebody later on wants to come along and take it. But that requires space. You got to have, you know, huge tracts of land to go park all of these space uh, spacecraft potentially in the future or the aircraft today. So Again, I don't know that it's easy money, but there's a lot of opportunity that isn't just, you know, oh, hey, I don't have the money to go build a rocket. Hey, well, don't don't worry about it. There are going to be as many ways to play the coming commercial space revolution as there are as many ways to play the commercial aviation marketplace that exists now. And it's a very lucrative market. Commercial aviation is one of the most successful today around the world. Commercial space is expected to be just as, you know, just as lucrative, if not more. 
I think that's a really inspiring way of looking at this industry and sort of the future of it. I was wondering if you could recommend maybe to myself and to the listeners a good book on uh, on aviation and its future. Oh, my goodness. One of the favorites that I've been reading lately, if you really want to know how the business of building aircraft works, there's a book by an expert. Uh, his name is Kevin Michaels, and the, the book is called aerodynamic inside the high stakes global jetliner ecosystem and it's it's a it's essentially an encyclopedia of everything you ever wanted to know about the in and outs of how the commercial aviation world uh, when it comes to building aircraft how it came to be the way we know it now so you got to be a little bit of an av geek uh, to get your way all the way through the book, it can be dense sometimes um, because it just goes into such great detail but but if you love aircraft it's worth a read. Awesome. Thank you very much for the recommendation. We'll definitely have that in the description. And if people want to find more of your writing and ideas, where can they find you? Just go to aviationweek.com uh, and you'll see my you'll see my articles there. Um, you can uh, you can actually find a corner of that website uh, where it has just my articles on it. So you're always welcome to go check that out there. But I can be reached uh, on LinkedIn uh, as well. I've got a profile there, or, or you're always welcome to just email me. I'm at michael.bruno at aviationweek.com. Uh, and then, of course, I get the privilege of showing up in uh, broadcasts like this. So I'm uh, honored to be talking to you here. I think this is the first time that I've heard the word avgeek, and I'm definitely going to implement <laughs> it into my, uh, into my vocabulary. Uh, Michael, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you today. You're welcome back onto the podcast anytime. And uh, for everybody listening to us, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube at Adrian Opal Group and find us on Twitter at Geoeconomics Podcast. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts like Stitcher, CastBox, etc. Thank you very much, and I'll see you on the next one.